Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. It means a lot to be able to do my debut here, uh, and it means a lot to see all of you here, so thank you for coming. Um, so I'm going to do something a little unconventional. Um, there will be sort of a Q&A, but I'm going to do a, uh, basically a self-interview. So I'm going to ask myself questions about my novel, and then I'll answer them. And then I will also do some readings from the novel throughout that. But if anyone has any questions at any point, you can raise your hand. I'll also pause at certain points for questions. Uh, I, I teach as my day job. I'm a tutor, so I sometimes get into this mode of this teacher mode. So if I if I sound too much like a high school teacher, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, all right. So um, question one: uh, Can you tell us what Portrait of Sebastian Kahn is about? Uh, yes, I can. Uh, so this novel, as the de as you probably heard from that description, it's uh, it's a novel. It's a literary comedy. Uh, I love that phrase, literary comedy. Uh, it's about a, a young man who is about to graduate from college and who is afraid of the real world. Uh, and he is, you know, he's Muslim American, but he's not practicing. And he's obsessed with art history. And essentially, he does everything he can to avoid growing up across the novel. Uh, it's sort of, it, more than that, it's a novel about, um, you know, it's about, it's about sort of uh, uh, young people facing a turning point in their life, but it's also a novel that sort of critiques a certain kind of masculinity, certain kind of uh, way, certain kind of men look at women, uh, but it's also about art history and the sort of relationship between reality and art. And finally, it's a, it's a satire of a model UN club. So that's the part that, uh, you know, that's the part that sort of seems like it doesn't really relate to the rest of it, but when you, when you read the novel, hopefully you'll see uh, the way it does. Uh, so to sort of set it all up, I'm going to read from the prologue, uh, a few sort of sections, a few pages from the prologue. So, Sebastian turns from the window and walks down the hallway to the adjoining room. He's in Philadelphia for only a few more hours. The Model United Nations Conference he is here for, he was here for, is over, and his team's plane will soon depart back to San Francisco. And tomorrow, he'll be back in his freshman dorm in Berkeley. And so, he wants one more time to gaze upon the painting, which has always been his favorite. Before the next room, he finds it, hanging unceremoniously by the doorway, overlooked by all the passers-by, eager to plunge headfirst into the 20th century rooms beyond. But not by, though not by Sebastian, who, like the painting, prefers to remain here, firmly rooted in the 19th century. The Thorny Path by Thomas Couture, 1873. The painting centers on a woman who is almost naked, wearing draped around her body only a single white sheet that nevertheless manages to leave exposed both her breasts. She sits enthroned atop a carriage, which, with a jaunty tilt of her head, she wills forward through a shadowy forest path. Below her, each clutching a rope that leads back to her magnificent seat, are not horses, but men. A nobleman, 
a soldier, a scholar, and a troubadour. Despite the surrounding darkness, the woman shines as if with divine light. As a whole, the image is meant to be an allegorical critique of the decadence and immorality of 19th century French society, or so the description beside it says. But Sebastian cares little for Couture's rather obvious didactic intent. In fact, his gaze barely lingers on the woman, naked though she is, and instead focuses on the men before her. The nobleman is fat and tired, his stomach hanging grotesquely out before him. The soldier is defeated, his sword pointed at the dirt and his face turned away in shame. The scholar is distant, a pen in his hand and his gaze far away. Only the troubadour pulls the carriage, or only the troubadour has his head held high, his expression proud and glowing as he pulls the carriage forward. To Sebastian, this troubadour becomes the unintended center of the piece. Sebastian is not stupid, a straight-A student, in fact, and so he does immediately recognize the painting's stern morality and the not-so-subtle reference to the transience of youth in the form of the old crone hunched in the carriage behind the semi-naked woman. But he chooses to ignore it all, the crone and the larger message. Art for him is about the perceiver and not the artist. And Sebastian reads the painting not as one of shame or sadness, but as a celebration of the troubadour's spirit. Alone of all these men, the troubadour pulls the carriage with purpose and optimism, happy to bear a burden as exquisite as this woman. Sebastian often ignores the thematic elements of the obvious thematic elements of art. He is the kind of young man who reads Frankenstein as a defense of ambition uh, and views La Dolce Vita as a glorification of the hedonistic life. His favorite literary figures are Amory Blaine, Julian Sorel, Don Quixote, and Don Draper. Most tragically of all, he believes the picture of Dorian Gray to be a celebration of the Epicurean spirit of Henry Wotton instead of a critique of decadence and aestheticism. And so what can one expect when a young man like that gazes up at a painting such as this? Staring at it thus, Sebastian only reaffirms his decision to study art history. To him, nothing is more beautiful than that which is real and yet still immortal, like these figures in this painting. He imagines the actual model for the troubadour, a young man once, but aging quickly, even just a few years after posing, lines appearing on the forehead and around the mouth, the rosy cheeks and lips fading to yellow, the beautiful locks of hair thinning and falling out, the fine, erect Apollonian figure flattening and developing a gut, the knees starting to ache from any prolonged period of standing before eventually giving out entirely. Now, of course, the model is long dead, his bones turning to ash somewhere in a Parisian catacomb. But the figure in the painting will always be young. And so in that troubadour's upturned face, Sebastian imagines his own eyes reflected back. As far as he's concerned, 
a piece of art is just a mirror, and Sebastian can't help but be, but long to be young forever too, to have his reflection in the window proceed unchanged, Dorian-like through the ages. All right, so that was from the prologue. Oh, you can clap, thank you. <laughs> Uh, that was from the prologue, and I think it introduces the main character quite uh, succinctly, I would say, right? Uh, it sort of gives you a sense of, you know, what his issues are, right? The kind, the way he looks at art, and it kind of, for me, that's the sort of central theme of the book, the way this character interacts with art and the way that changes over the, over the course of the novel. Okay, so question two. Uh, is your novel autobiographical? So that's the question I get asked more than anything. Is this novel autobiographical? I think everyone wants to know just on a, on a, for any novel, people are always curious about, you know, about autobiography. But in this novel in particular, right, it's about a character who went to Berkeley, who's Muslim American but not practicing, who was in Model UN. Some people might see some similarities, right? Um, but I do want to say, it's not, I, I was very conscious about this. I did not want to write an autobiographical novel. I was, I, I, I started to when I first wrote this. So. The story behind this novel, I started it back in 2011, which feels like 100 years ago, right? If you guys remember 2011. Uh, and I started it then, this was right after I graduated college, and back then it was an autobiographical novel. That's what I tried to write. I wanted to write about myself, right? And it was in first person, and it was not very good, and it was just very sort of, uh, I couldn't look at myself, if that makes sense. And I, I think that's what's hard about autobiographical novels. So. In the rewrite process, which I sort of put it away for a while after it's, I sort of realized it was not a good novel, I restarted the whole thing in 2015, and that was when I realized that I had to make it, I had to consciously distance myself from the character. For all the similarities that there might be, I had to actually approach the psychology of the character as if it was a different person, right? Like as if it was not me, I had to sort of say, okay, what would his parents be like? What would he do? How can I make him different from me? And so obviously some of you who know me will sort of recognize elements of me in the character, but in my process I was very conscious of trying to make it not autobiographical, right? And of course one of the central themes of the novel is the difference between right, art and reality, right? Like what is, what is that relationship like? And so in this novel I try to play with that idea, right? How does this novel reflect, you know, how does this novel reflect reality, but also in what ways is it, uh, is it quite obviously sort of not reality? Right, and I think that theme sort of informed a lot of the way I approached the character ultimately. Okay, so question, question three. Can you describe the publication process? All right, so I sort of hinted at it a little bit. I started it back in 2011. So let me just give you the little story. Um, so for those of you who follow me on Twitter, uh, most of my tweets get about you know, 10 likes, 12 likes if it's a really funny tweet. You know, occasionally I'll get the viral tweet, which is like 40 likes for me. I tweeted this story of, uh, of the sort of publication process and it got 250 likes, which is the most I've ever gotten from a tweet, which for me is more than viral. That's something else. That's like everyone on Twitter must have read that tweet. So, um, so let me just tell you a little bit about the story of how this sort of came from my idea to publication. So, um, you know, so I started it in 2011. I wrote a bad, bad first draft and I finished it by 2012. And uh, then in 2012, I sort of looked at it and I was like, wow, this is not very good. I don't really like this, right? Something's not working about it. 
I moved to LA around that time, or a year later, and I tried to sort of, you know, for those, some of you who know me, I tried to go into screenwriting. I wanted to become a screenwriter, and so I tried to turn this into a screenplay. It was gonna be a, it was gonna be a pilot about Model United Nations, about a Model UN club, and sort of the, the antics that ensue. But I just couldn't, I couldn't get it to work. I was bad at writing screenplays. I kept writing long, florid descriptions in the sort of, you know, between the dialogue, and I didn't really care about the dialogue. So it was not, it was not suited to write screenplays, basically. Um, so then, in about 2015, after I'd sort of had some distance, right, from the character, and also after my own ideas about art had become a little more sophisticated, I'd sort of understood more about art history, I was able to kind of reconceptualize re the novel, basically, in 2015 as something very different than what it had originally started, as a sort of third person, you know, uh, third person distant narration, and in addition, uh, and that, and, and you know, I found the voice in sort of the first sentence, right? If you sort of read the first sentence, which I didn't read out loud, but the first sentence I sort of wrote very early, and I, I've edited a little bit here and there, but I, I found that voice in about 2015, and I was able to just let that rhythm carry me through the rest of it, right? I feel like once you find, it's so hard to start a novel, but if you can start it in the right way, sometimes that rhythm can just carry you through that first draft. And that's sort of what happened. I was able to just... You know, that, that flow, there's sort of a, if you, the sentences here are very long and they're kind of uh, not quite run-on sentences, but they, they, they you know, the, some sentences are over, you know, 200 words long in here. So they, they really sort of go on for a while. And once I found that, I was able to finish the draft in about a year and a half. It took a long time to edit because uh, I kept querying agents while I was editing it, which I would never recommend to anyone. Make sure you edit your novel before you start sending out query letters. I was just very eager to do that. Uh, and then in about, you know, I sent, I queried about 100 agents, right? Something like 100 agents. I got about 100 rejections. It was a really demoralizing process, and I was ready to sort of give up on the novel and think, okay, this is probably not going to happen. But then I decided to submit to small presses, right? Which is uh, sort of, uh, for those of you who are writers, you know that this is sort of a real marketplace for, for, for people who, you know, it's so hard to get into the big five publishing or however many there are, big four, whatever there are now, right? They keep consolidating, so it's hard to tell. But um, I published with a small press, and luckily I found sort of the perfect press. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Leland Chuck runs seven, 13 books. He's an author himself. Uh, he, had a, he had a sort of a salon article go viral about his story, which you can sort of read about. Basically, uh, you know, he had a sort of, he, he got cancer, and then he sort of survived cancer, and the same day that his novel was accepted, and that date happened to be 7-13, right? Uh, you know, July 13th. And so he decided to found a small press, right, to help authors who are struggling, essentially, with sort of breaking into the big five. And most of his, you know, most of his, uh, most of his, the people he publishes have had stories uh, which demonstrate a lot more perseverance than me, right? Some people have published, started their novels in 2002, right, in 2000. So 2011 feels very recent, I think, for his press, but it's, it was great, and it was a, it was a, he was a really great editor. He helped me make the novel much better. The draft that I submitted to him in 2017 that he accepted is a far inferior novel to the one that came out, I think, and so the, the editing process was really, was really essential. And finally, 2019, uh, about eight years after I'd started it, it finally got published. So it was, it was, quite, the, it was quite the process. So that's the publication process. So hopefully someone finds it inspiring. Okay, so question four. All right, give me a second. And, uh, oh yeah, we're good on time. Okay, question four. Uh, how would you describe your voice and writing style, and how has it evolved? So this one, uh, you know, this one is, uh, is an interesting question, because I'd say, 
when I first started writing, I was under that sort of influence of, of Hemingway, right? That was the sort of, that's the writer, if you're a man, and if you're a straight man, Hemingway is the one, right, in college. That's the, that's the writer that all of, everyone wants you to imitate, right? And you want to be Hemingway. And that's, it's, it's like this, I get it, but at the same time, not everyone can be Hemingway. And I think at a certain point, I had to realize that Actually, my style and my voice and the sort of natural rhythm of my prose was the inverse of that, right? I think there's the Hemingway Fitzgerald sort of like binary, right? I'm definitely more the Fitzgerald, I'd say, right? Uh, I love comparing myself to Fitzgerald. I think that's fun. Um, no, but I think the, the other authors who've influenced me, I sort of realized as a kid, you know, they tend to be British, they tend to be wordy, right? They tend to be people like Evelyn Waugh and P.G. Woodhouse and sort of these these sort of comic and sometimes silly writers, right? And once I found, once I sort of was confident in that voice, rather than trying to write that sort of serious masculine prose of Hemingway or Carver, it, it came a lot easier. So I think, you know, we always talk about finding your voice and it's a cliche, but it was, it was nice when it finally happened. So that's the sort of writing style and how it's kind of, uh, how it's kind of evolved. And I think what's interesting is that since this book, I think my writing style has continued to evolve, right? So at a certain point, I had to go back and rewrite a certain section of this book, right, in the editing process. And actually it was hard because I realized that the style that I had employed here, you know, there's just little things like, you know, I used a lot more and, right? I, I used a lot more sort of compound sentences rather than say, you know, subordinate clauses or modifiers, right? All this technical stuff, right? But I, I was sort of very, I sort of realized that. And I realized that, oh, in order to make my writing sound like it still fits with this voice, I actually had to sort of put myself back into the voice that I wrote this in, you know? And so my new stuff, I'd say, is, is a little different. But I think it's interesting, right, to sort of see, okay, this book that you wrote, you know, 2016 is also a long time ago. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, it takes a while for a book to come out. And by the time it comes out, sometimes you're sort of a different person, right? The, your writing style is different. So... Uh, it was interesting to go back to it and sort of and, and, and note the way the voice was part of an evolution, I think. Okay, question five. Uh, so how would you say, where would you say portrait fits in relation to current trends in contemporary literary fiction? Uh, I love this question too, because I love, for those of you who know me, I love talking about trends in contemporary literary fiction. Um, this was actually kind of, this is kind of a hard question to answer because I don't think when I wrote it I was conscious of, of, of that. But I think, you know, one of the big trends that we've seen is obviously autofiction, right? People writing about their own experiences in very sort of, very literal, almost like pared down prose, right? Even if it's sort of, and, and kind of just, just writing it, you know? Uh, and in this one, I think, if anything, it's kind of a, it's kind of a conscious, consciously against that, right? This is, it might be somewhat based on my life, but it's not autofiction, it's not autobiographical. If anything, it's kind of a commentary on how no matter what kind of thing you create, whether it's a piece of art or a piece of writing, it's always gonna be constructed in some way. It's always gonna be artificial. And so it sort of leans more into the art, artificiality. So I think, if anything, that's probably where it stands in, you know, in contemporary, in relation to contemporary, contemporary literature. Um, it's a hard question though, because I also think we don't always, you know, I, I like to think we think of it, and I certainly think of it after, and I'm thinking about it a lot more now, but I think because this was my first novel, I wasn't really thinking about that a lot, right? Um, and, you know, because it can be a hard question to sort of deal with and think about. Okay, so question six. Last year, you wrote a blog post for the Kenyan Review about the concept of ethnic fiction. Can you recap what you argued and discuss how it applies to Portrait of Sebastian Kahn? So, some of you may know I write blog posts for the Kenyan Review, and this one was the, probably the most popular, right? Uh, 
it was the one that got the most, you know, the most buzz, and a lot of people messaged me about it. So I want to read from this, from the blog post about ethnic fiction, and then I'll talk about how it applies. So, uh, okay, and the, the post is just titled On Ethnic Fiction, but ethnic fiction is in quotes. All right, so Mark McGurl's The Program Era is a wonderful book, and I've mentioned it several times on this blog before, but it does use the problematic label ethnic fiction to describe a broad swath of writers, from Philip Roth to Maxine Hong Kingston, essentially anyone who writes about characters from marginalized identities. In McGurl's defense, he more often uses the phrase high cultural pluralism than ethnic fiction, but still, the fact that he feels the need to employ the latter term to explain the former reveals, sadly, that it still has a relevance in our literary world, despite the fact that writers of color today write such works of, works of such variety that it's absurd to try and lump them together under such a reductive label. I myself encountered quite a bit of this as an emerging writer when submitting my work, mainly this novel, uh, to literary agents, many of whom told me I needed to bring out the Muslim or the Pakistani elements of my characters. One of them even put it as bluntly as they could, saying that the main reason a reader picks up a work by a non-white writer is to be introduced to an unfamiliar culture. My novel, alas, was ultimately too American, and my brown characters too white. Needless to say, none of these agents were people of color. I understand, of course, that these agents all had the best of intentions. They wanted my work to sell, and they were doing what they thought would help publish more writers of color. But their approach assumed that I'd be writing exclusively for a white audience. And this, in microcosm, is my problem with the label ethnic fiction. Beyond just the term, the very idea of the category assumes a white audience, as if there's something so different about marginalized perspectives that novels that feature them must be placed in their own separate category. White writers get to be minimalist or postmodern, Mark McGurl's other two categories for post-war American fiction, but writers of color are inevitably always writers of ethnic fiction. At first, this view appears to be the inverse of that infamous joke from the recent reboot of Roseanne about missing the television shows featuring black and Asian families. They're, all, they're, they're just like us, there, now you're all caught up. You guys remember that joke. Instead of emphasizing how underneath the racial difference everyone's just American, the label ethnic fiction assumes that any experience of a person of color is so different that it deserves its own special category. But really, these views are just two sides of the same coin. Because lurking behind the idea that a white reader will pick up a book by a writer of color only to explore an unfamiliar culture is the truth that if a culture is too unfamiliar, too strange, too different from the normative bourgeois American experience, this hypothetical white reader will be made too uneasy. The result is that the ideal work of ethnic fiction is one that introduces a white reader to an unfamiliar world, emphasizes the cultural differences between them and their protagonist, but ultimately reassures the white reader that beneath these cultural differences, the ethnic protagonist still possesses the same universal human values. So that's just part of the post. It goes on from there. But let me talk a little bit about how that applies here, because I think you know, what I like about, so my publisher once used to say that he doesn't feel that, uh, that sort of, um, you know, he, he was very conscious of this too, this idea, right? Leland, you know, uh, he's an Asian writer, Asian-American writer, and he always felt that 
I think the joke he made was he doesn't always get up in the morning and think, I'm going to go brush my Asian teeth, right? So he doesn't, he doesn't think that. Nobody thinks that. You're not always conscious, right, of your, of your marginalized identity, right? Sometimes, in fact, it's kind of nice. You get to not be that marginalized identity. And so that was that was kind of my, my experience growing up a little bit. And so with this book, you know, I wanted to write a character who was not white, right? And he's half white in this. Uh, but I wanted to write a character who's not completely white. And I think it was sort of important to me that it doesn't, you know, I do have that novel somewhere in me. The sort of, you know, Muslim boy growing up after 9-11 who feels the weight of blah, blah, blah. I'm going to write that at some point, right? But this is not that, right? This is a different novel. I wanted it to sort of be a different kind of person of color narrative. And one thing that I thought was really important was allowing a person of character to be a bad person, right? A person of color to be a bad person, right? I think a lot of people will read this book and not really like Sebastian Kahn, right? They'll sort of find him problematic, certainly in terms of the way he looks at women, right? Uh, and I think, for me, it was important to allow a person of color to have that flaw, right? I compare him a lot to Don Draper on the back cover, throughout the novel, it's kind of a joke throughout, right? And the thing is, you know, white people get to be Don Draper in novels. They get to be Don Draper all the time, and we forgive them for it. But sometimes we expect a person of color to be so much more perfect. And any, you know, I, that's not my experience. I was not a perfect person, and most of the people of color that I knew and were friends with were not perfect people. And so it was important, me, important for me to represent that in a novel and essentially say, yeah, this person is a very flawed and fucked up human being, and he is also half Muslim, uh, you know, part Muslim American. He, and so that's, that, that was important to me to do. So I really wanted to sort of do that with this, and I'm really glad that Leland, my publisher, recognized that and was sort of, you know, and that was the thing, I think, that really drew him to the novel when, you know, when I submitted it to him. All right, question seven. We have some time yet. Uh, time for a difficult question. All right, your novel features an unlikable male heterosexual protagonist who treats women as art objects and pursues them purely for sexual gratification rather than any emotional connection, mostly. In an era when representations of the male gaze are increasingly and rightfully criticized, how do you ensure you're actually critiquing your character instead of lapsing into self-indulgence? So, yeah, I, I ask myself the tough questions. This was, a, this was something that I really thought about a lot. It was something that I sort of had to struggle with, to be frank, right? Because, um, you know, some of my big literary influences are Philip Roth, for example, right? And, you know, I, could, I can definitely imagine the men nodding in their heads and the women going, oh, my God, Philip Roth, right? Because he's a polarizing writer, right? Like, I think a lot of men I know really connect to Philip Roth. They see themselves in his characters, and especially people who are you know, people of color, right, see themselves in Philip Roth novels. That's how I felt. And yet I know that he's also a very sexist writer whose depictions of women, even if they're intended perhaps to be critiques of the characters, are still difficult to read. So this was something I definitely thought about, right? And all I'll say for this is essentially, I, you know, the ways that I approached trying to avoid self-indulgence, and whether that's successful or not, I think is up to every individual reader. But for me, the first thing was being able to do it in third person. Right? Such a small thing, it, it seems like a small thing, but it actually creates that distance that's necessary for the critique, right? Uh, you know, secondly, I think the way in which, you know, I really wanted to be careful to avoid the Mad Men trap, right? I love Mad Men, I think it's a great show. At the same time, most men I know wanted to be Don Draper. 
right? And doesn't that sort of subvert the whole critique of the show if you want to be Don Draper, right? The whole point is that, oh, look at this sexist guy from the 60s. Thank God we're not like that anymore. And yet half the men I knew watching the show were like, man, I want to be like Don Draper, right? And that was a problem. That was a sort of, uh, you know, that's, 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 that makes the show, I think, imperfect. And so it was important to me to make sure, and, and you know, more than that, I think, even a lot of the women I knew who watched the show also liked Don Draper despite themselves, right? It was, he was an attractive figure who was sort of, uh, you know, despite the fact that he's sexist, he treats some people nice and he's a good at advertising and all of that. Whereas here, I, was, I very much wanted Sebastian to just come across as an asshole at times. And he's not necessarily, as much as he thinks of himself as Don Draper, right? He's not Don Draper. And he's, you know, he's a kid in Model UN who studies art history at Berkeley, right? It's certainly not high power advertising at, you know, a New York firm. So there is a kind of, you know, the, the satire of the book, I think, critiques it a lot more than Don Draper, which kind of, I think, really indulged in its aesthetics. Um, you know, of course, as the, the passage I read from the beginning was all about misinterpreting art. So, you know, that's the thing. People misinterpret art all the time. People see themselves in characters that are intended to be problematic. And so I can't really predict how people will feel about Sebastian Kahn, but I tried to represent him as uh, sort of, you know, uh, as flawed as I could, but still authentic to what I felt was, uh, you know, still what I felt was authentic. So, um, you know, we, and we always sort of disagree with sort of critiques of these kind of characters, right? Um, I was compared in a review to Bret Easton Ellis, uh, which was weird because I actually don't like Bret Easton Ellis, and I don't think I write like him at all. But I think what they meant was that I write these sort of really emotionally stunted, kind of really flawed characters, uh, which I'll take. That's fine. I can I can accept the Bret Easton Ellis comparison. But what's funny about him is he's another example of that kind of writer who some people think he's critiquing his character, and some people think he's self-indulgent, right? That he's sort of indulging in their behavior. And that dichotomy, I think, can't really be fully addressed. People will have these different reactions. So I think I'm I'm fine with the sort of dual reactions that I think this book will get. You know, I, I think as a writer, you sort of just have to be, so. All right, so question, we'll do uh, maybe one or two more questions, and if anyone has any questions from the audience. Okay, so uh, question eight. Why did you choose to focus on the Pre-Raphaelites and other 19th century art? All right, so for those of you who don't know who the Pre-Raphaelites are, they're this absurd art movement from the middle of the 19th century. They're these sort of, um, one character in here who's insulting them describes them as you know, history airbrushed of everything except maidens and castles, right? It's sort of these 19th century men, they're almost all men, I think, they, I think they're all men, they're called the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. There might have been some women adjacent to the movement, but they all draw these sort of, they paint these very beautiful but highly stylized women with flowing hair, right? Sort of being very sad and staring at letters or staring up at the sky or standing in fields, right? They're these very sort of overwrought emotional pieces, right? And I loved those pieces when I was young. I thought they were, the, I thought they were such amazing artwork because it's this, it's this sort of, I thought, it was this pure beauty that I could just, I could just aesthetically appreciate without having to consider any of, the, any of the ramifications. And that's how Sebastian sort of views the pre-Raphaelites, right, throughout this novel. Um, at some point, uh, you know, I thought about it, like, if I had made Sebastian into modern art, if he had been sort of, you know, really into Degas, right, or this impressionist art, but, you know, if, if I had made him really into Picasso, right, if I had made him sort of really into 20th century art, he would be too cool, right? The problem is, like, you can sort of get away with sexism and be into art like the sort of 20th century artists, but if you're into the pre-Raphaelites, you're not really that cool, right? And that's sort of just, every time he thinks he's cool, it's sort of, you remind yourself that he's into the pre-Raphaelites, and that's kind of weird, and that sort of, 
adds to that satire that I was going for. So that's why I really, I really went with the pre-Raphaelites. You know, they're this weird conservative movement. There's no avant-garde there. There's nothing sort of, uh, you know, there's nothing edgy about the pre-Raphaelites. Um, at the same time, I should say, I don't totally dislike the pre-Raphaelites. I think the way to look at them, it's not that they're bad art, it's you have to approach them knowing that they're not real, right? They're not painting realistic works. And maybe they thought they were painting realistic works, but if you want to give them credit, maybe they were conscious that they weren't, right? And this goes back to sort of the, the overall thematic idea that I was trying to get at in this novel, is that difference between art and reality, right? Uh, and essentially, you know, you have to sort of basically write, uh, my novel's very grounded to some extent in 2010, 2011. There are a lot of details from that time period, from Berkeley. Uh, at the same time, it's also a very exaggerated depiction of college students, right? Nobody goes to class in this novel, right? But there are nine party scenes in this novel. So that sort of is part of the, <laughs> part of the exaggeration. It's not a realistic depiction of college. It's, an, it's a certain specific kind of artificial description of college that highlights certain things and, you know, and, and devalues others, just like a pre-Raphaelite work. And so that was my, essentially, that was my way of making sure that, uh, that was my way of making sure that sort of, you know, it, it was my commentary on pre-Raphaelite art. So we can appreciate art that is exaggerated uh, and as long as we sort of are aware, right, that it's not real. So, um, I'm gonna close out with a passage, right, just to read a small section, but before we do, uh, does anyone have any questions? Does anyone in the audience wanna ask anything? All right, so let me, let me read you from the middle of the book. This is the scene where Sebastian meets Fatima, the sort of central uh, female character of the book to some extent. All right. He reaches the sofa and sits, leaving a few inches of space between them. Hi, he says. Hi, she says. Sebastian sees she has no drink in her hand. Not drinking tonight, he asks. I don't drink. Sebastian is briefly awed. Temperance is not a very popular ideal on a college campus, and meeting a practitioner is often more unlikely than meeting a 9-11 truther, or someone who voted McCain. She does, in some ways, resemble those women who founded temperance societies in the late 19th century America, with strong, arched, and bushy eyebrows, a broad forehead, hair tied back in a loose ponytail, small glasses that sharpen her already sharp gaze, a blouse buttoned all the way to the top, and a long flowing skirt that falls past her knees, a garment which, in the age of miniskirts, seems to him as archaic as the ideals of courtly love and traditional marriage. Are you allergic, he asks. What? She looks confused. Are you allergic, Sebastian repeats, to alcohol? Why do you think I'm allergic to alcohol? Because you don't drink. Her eyes narrow. I'm Muslim. Ah. Sebastian's eyes widen with surprise and interest. It's obvious now that he knows. Her skin color is like his mother's was, and she looks like a grown-up version of the Pakistani girls he remembers from the Islamic classes at the mosque he used to go to as a child. Sebastian, of course, has long since abandoned Islam. His mother was the religious parent, holding on to the Pakistani half of her heritage in a way Sebastian's father never did, and insisting Sebastian go to Islamic school on Sundays. But when she died, when Sebastian was 12, 
he started going less and less, and eventually not at all. Religion seemed an insufficient answer to life's tragedies. Instead, Sebastian turned to art, an interest his mother had often encouraged in him. At the library one day, soon after her death, he found a book on the Pre-Raphaelites and, flipping it open with a longing for his mother clutching at his chest, he discovered a print of Rossetti's Proserpina. He was drawn at first to the way she reminded him of his mother, the slender fingers, the black hair, the faraway look in her eyes. But after a moment, he began to focus on the colors abstracted from any meaning the fiery orange of the peach, the deep red of the lips, the velvet and oceanic blue of the dress. They were like nothing he'd ever seen in suburban California, windows to another reality, a refuge from the melancholy of his new motherless world. After that, Sebastian lost himself in the art of the 19th century, in romantic and pre-Raphaelite and Victorian images of slender women standing in vivid landscapes with wild hair and sadness in their eyes. In the abundance of color and sensuality, Sebastian found something almost spiritual, an, emo an alternative to the dreary present, a glorious past where emotional pain didn't exist. Those paintings filled a void that Islam, with its rejection of visual depiction, never could. And so Sebastian passed his adolescence in a state of blissful impiety, skipping mosque class to go to museum exhibitions and reading Walter Pater instead of the Quran. Sebastian's father, who never particularly liked Islam, or any religion for that matter, wasn't at all bothered by his son's spiritual decline and fall. Yet still, despite his apostasy, whenever Sebastian passes by the Muslim Student Association table on Sproul Plaza, and sees the group of them praying at the top of the steps of the Martin Luther King building and placing their foreheads on the felt prayer mats rolled out across the ground, he feels a surprising swell of emotion listening to their collective Allahu Akbar echo down the promenade. In those moments, he thinks of his mother, who taught him some Arabic words as a child and whispered them to him as he went to sleep comforting, lilting phrases that she said would blanket him and always keep him safe. Now, with this Fatima who declares herself Muslim and doesn't drink and has his mother's skin tone and even looks a little like Rossetti's Proserpina with her sharp nose and fierce expression, Sebastian is overwhelmed with a strange feeling, something he's never felt for any of the many women he's casually courted women who have almost entirely been white. Something beyond simple lust, a longing for his mother and a culture he'd long ago rejected. All right, thank you guys for listening to me talk to myself for 45 minutes. As some of you know, uh, Lou Matthews, where is he? There he is. He's doing an after party, uh, as he often does with uh, his former students. So if you want to come to an after party and have pizza and drink wine, uh, come see me and I'll give you a flyer for directions to Lou's house. Uh, but thank you all for coming and thank you to Skylight for hosting me. This was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. If anyone has any questions, I can take them, but uh, I, don't think, I don't know if anyone does. <laughs>
Does anyone have a question? Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, what brought me back to it? I, I don't know how other writers feel, but I feel like there's you never sort of like totally give up on a project, right? Even if you sort of put it away, you always feel like it's there in the back of your mind. And I don't really remember. I was just I was sitting at this restaurant in Westwood that no longer exists. It was closed. It was some like Quebecois restaurant or something. I was like eating dinner by myself, right? It was like five o'clock. I remember that. I remember it very vividly. And I was sitting there and I was thinking about art for some reason because I guess that's what I do, right? Uh, I was going to go to some class at UCLA Extension, uh, and I just started writing, like, sort of what is, you know, I was just kind of writing honestly, like, what do I really think about art? Like, just getting sort of at that core, you know, because when we talk about these novels starting with autobiography, I'd started with, yeah, I'd started with, like, myself, and now I started, maybe the autobiographical element of this book should not be, like, my own life, but, like, my, my understanding and feelings about art. Maybe that should be the source of the autobiography. So I just started writing that, and then I just sort of, felt like I figured it out. I was like, oh, this should be the sort of relationship between this character and art, this process that I feel like I've kind of gone through, right, in relation to sort of how I, how I look at art. So, yeah, thanks for the question. I think that's sort of how I, that's how I sort of came back to it. Any other questions? Yeah? Oh, that's a good question. For a while, I toyed with this idea of like, Oh, what if, like, so it's all about how he feels like he's going to grow old at 22, right? It's sort of, that's part of the, the humor of the novel, right? He thinks he's so old because he's turning 22, right? Um, and I was like, what if this character is, like, turning 30? What would he feel? And as some of you know, I turned 30 uh, a few days ago, right? So um, I was like, oh, what if, and I was like, what if he did a whole novel about, like, his relationship to modern art and he's turning 30? But then I thought, no, I think I need to sort of just write other things. And, you know, maybe this is the last time I look at Sebastian Kahn. Who knows? At this point, I think I feel uh, like I want to write other stuff. But yeah, maybe I, I, now I have that idea in the back of my mind, so maybe I will sort of come back to it like when I'm 60 or something, you know? Uh, maybe that'll be more interesting, a 60-year-old Sebastian Kahn, so. Yeah? So you talked a bit about the publication process. Um, I'm wondering how you're feeling now with it being launched, um, or maybe it's too early? No, that's a great question. I think I've, I'm feeling, I've been feeling a range of emotions, right? So. It's a small press, and Leland's first thing was you got you to moderate your expectations, right? You are not really going to be in bookstores unless it's like Skylight and you read there, right? And places like that. Like, unless you're sort of, you know, it's going to be a slow sort of sales process, right? You're, if, you know, if it sort of sells at all, you're going to have to see this as kind of like a springboard to like future books and a future literary career. But, um, yeah, I've also felt this kind of... Uh, I passed by earlier and I looked inside and I saw my book on the shelf and I kind of freaked out and then I went to that diner over there and just had a beer and so it was, um, uh, it was like three o'clock and so it was, um, uh, yeah, so I think I definitely feel, yeah, that, that kind of pressure. But I think it's, uh, I think uh, my publisher sort of did a good job of helping me sort of make sure, like sort of being realistic with me about sort of the, the expectations for the book and I think I've, I luckily have a lot of writer friends who have gone through the same process so it's nice to be able to you know, see how they dealt with it. Yeah? Um, 
oh yeah, like so the writing process from there, definitely, yeah. Like that was the pro period where I took a bunch of I took a bunch of UCLA classes, right, with lots of different people, uh, including Lou, but uh, lots of other people too. But I, so I'd started this book before Lou's class. But you know, um, for those of you, a lot of people here have taken classes with Lou Matthews at UCLA, um, and he, you know, yeah, he taught me. I feel like he taught me how to write in some fundamental ways that I just didn't know before. If that makes sense, you know, like write in scene and uh, use the five senses and write more dialogue, just like little things like that, that I think, uh, you know, you know, uh, this book was sort of mostly written, I'd say, before and during Lou's class rather than afterwards, but it's definitely a, uh, uh, it definitely helped a lot to just put it away, figure stuff out about my own, you know, learn how to write, basically, and then come back to it. Any other questions? Yeah? Well, yeah, I, that's actually a fascinating question. I think I actually feel some of the same things where it's like, oh, if, you know, when, especially, I think the literature connection you made is really great. Like, talking about literature, we definitely, I think, as writers are sort of like, uh, oh, you look at the work as this work, right, as this artistic thing, and your emotional reaction to the character is, you know, don't, don't, don't let that get into it. And I think with this, I think maybe it was the kind of art that I was looking at, right? Maybe it was like the fact that it was the pre-Raphaelites and you could sort of get at uh, some of the sort of emotional reactions to that. But I think at the same time, I think what's, what I sort of try to do in this is also in some ways critique Sebastian's emotional reaction to the piece, to the pieces of art he sees, right? So I think, I think you're still right in the sense that there is a kind of way of approaching, you know, there is a character who's more sort of, I, I guess you could say classically trained in this, in, the, in that she studies art history more seriously than Sebastian, and she has this sort of complete kind of intellectual takedown at one point of Sebastian's relationship to the pre-Raphaelites. And I don't think I disagree with her when I wrote that. I think I sort of agree with her, her critique that one of the things, and so I think you're right that like, I guess I sort of allowed myself to talk about the emotional relationship that an individual has with art in some ways to kind of critique that a little bit, to recognize that how, uh, you know, when I say at the beginning, Sebastian sees art as a mirror, right? By the end, I don't know if Sebastian sees art as a mirror anymore, right? But I think a lot of us maybe first encounter art that way, right? For a lot of people, they first see art as a mirror and they see how it relates to themselves. And maybe the process of sort of being able to see it outside of yourself is maybe, is important, I think, right? So I think, I think that's a great question. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> Mm-hmm. If you're creating something, you want to connect. Mm-hmm. And then taking that um, high academia and just let's take those two worlds, because you're actually making them get along, right? 
I think, yeah, well, thank you for that. That's a great interpretation. Yeah, no, thank you. Oh, thank you, yeah. Any other questions? Anything else? Yeah? Oh, <laughs> my, my dad's response was, yeah, man, it's great. Yeah, good job. You know, he's, he's, a, he's an engineer. He's into the business side. He's like, so, so he's going to be in bookstores? You're going to sell it places? Like, yeah, you know, he's going to be at Costco? Like, are you going to be on the New York? You know, he's, he's into that. Like, that's his relationship to novels. So he was asking about that. My mom, I don't know if my mom liked it, but maybe that's okay. Maybe that's fine. I think she, I think she didn't, uh, she felt it was too explicit is what she told me. So... <laughs> And I don't know if a mother wants to read that, so fair enough. I, I'm, she's brave for having read it. So, uh, Any other questions? All right, well, thank you guys again. Thank you for being here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.